Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates, providing intensive therapy, individualized academic instruction, and social skills training for children with autism. Behavior Associates analysts develop an individualized treatment plan for each child receiving services. Presenting sponsor of The Facing Project, more at BehaviorABA.com. I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, I'll explore empathy. It's the basis of our work here at The Facing Project, and humans are hardwired for it through mirror neurons. But time, culture, and climate determine if empathy grows, remains neutral, or worse, leads to anger or apathy. I'll share the stories of two women, one who teaches kids empathy through drama therapy, and the other who found it by loving her trans daughter. Later, former co-host Kelsey Timmerman joins me for a two-way, where we unpack all of this and make the argument for why empathy, if practiced in the right ways, has the ability to save us all. Stay with us for The Empathy Effect. I can still remember the moment when I knew The Facing Project had the ability to shape hearts and minds, which, by the way, was not even The Facing Project at the time. This was back in 2012, and my good friend and fellow writer Kelsey Timmerman reached out to me about a project he was working on called Facing Poverty in Delaware County, Indiana. Much like the current model of The Facing Project, storytellers and writers were partnered together to collaborate on first-person narratives told from the storytellers' perspectives. I was partnered with a woman named Pat, and I knew nothing about her before we met, other than she was associated with poverty in Delaware County in some way. What happened next changed the course of my and Kelsey's work. Pat and I met on a sunny winter morning at an IHOP and took a corner booth. I had a series of questions mapped out before me, my recorder rolling, and before I could even ask the first question, Pat said, could we just have a conversation? And with that simple request, the script was flipped. Since I had my recorder as a backup, I agreed, and Pat and I spent three hours talking about love and loss, hope and heartbreak, and I shared as much of my story as she shared of hers. Through our conversation, we found our similarities and our differences, but more than anything, it helped us build rapport and empathy. That first meeting was only the start of a series of meetings Pat and I would have over the course of the following weeks as we crafted her story, and in the months and the years that followed as we remained in touch. I was so moved by this connection and responsibility of carrying someone else's story that I said to Kelsey, I thought we had something more, and that something more became The Facing Project. Eleven years later, we have used the model to help over 100 communities in 18 U.S. states and 11 countries tell their stories in the same way. Time and again, we've continued to hear this storytelling heightened empathy and understanding, and of course, changed hearts, minds, and inspired action, such as LGBTQ plus individuals becoming a protected class in a small Ohio town, and food pantries opening on college campuses for food insecure students and staff. That's the power of a personal narrative, but we needed to know for sure. So, in 2016, we embarked on a three-year longitudinal study on attitude change that surveyed over 7,500 past participants of Facing Projects. 
I won't bore you with all the stats, but we did find that 91% indicated our model challenged previously held stereotypes, and 100% found it easier to understand the perspective of others. That's a win, right? Well, we think so, but over the past few years, it's felt like empathy is slowly decreasing within communities. Indeed, studies from the National Institute of Health are showing a rapid decline in empathy among youth due to high levels of distress, which makes sense given that we've experienced three years of a global pandemic among a whole host of other issues, such as increasing poverty and hunger. And among adults, we're seeing a decline in empathy due to tribalism and cultural wars. So, do stories still have the ability to heighten empathy and understanding? Well, stay tuned. Today, you'll hear from a theater director who opened the imagination of kids in her community with a guitar and some creative thinking, and from a mom of a trans daughter who asked others to have a change of heart. Later, Kelsey rejoins me to unpack all of this, and we make the argument for why empathy, if practiced in the right ways, has the ability to save us all. Due to some strong language and content that may be disturbing to some, Listener discretion is advised. The world through the eyes of another. Laura Williamson's story is told to Monique Armstrong and performed by Lori Markham. I can stand with those who are walking through deep waters because I've walked through my own. My three-year-old son died unexpectedly. Doesn't get much deeper than that. Tragedy can find us, but it's our response that determines whether we thrive beyond mere existence I've lived a miracle and experienced crippling loss, but through it all, the response that I chose during the most difficult days is belief in something, and I believe in the power of drama therapy. I had the privilege to interpret the role of Hello Dolly's main character, Dolly Levi, at the Muncie Civic Theater. The last time I had played Dolly, I was in high school and there was a big difference playing Dolly at 40 versus 16. I'd lived a lot more life. I knew love unimaginable loss, and been through a really dark time. I hadn't acted in seven years when I took that role, but I was ready. There are three scenes in the play where Dolly's on stage, alone, speaking directly to her deceased husband. She talks about being ready to rejoin humanity. She wanted to get back to life. I'm ready to move out in front. Life without life has no reason or rhyme left. With the rest of them, with the best of them, I want to hold my head up high. I need a goal again, I need a drive again, I want to feel my heart coming alive again, before the parade passes by. With each performance and rehearsal when Dolly committed to live again, I did the same thing. This allowed me to tap into feelings for eight shows in a way that traditional therapy just couldn't. When we see the world through the eyes and emotions of another, we see the hope in their story, the possibility of it all. I wanted to bring that feeling to the students that motivate our minds. They run an after-school program that helps kids with homework and connects them to people and opportunities that they may not normally be exposed to. And they were all in. So I showed up on a Friday with a box of scarves and my guitar. The students, all preteens, came up with the details of our play. The characters, 
how they were related to one another, the names and the backstories. It was sort of an ongoing soap opera, not meant to be a performance, really. It was more about the process. Any big decisions in our play, they voted on. But I was surprised by the setting they chose. An affluent middle-class junior high in Southern California. Can't get much further from Muncie, Indiana than that. There was another layer to the play. At this school in Southern California, there was a portal that once the students stepped through it, transported them to another realm where they would have superpowers. They always enjoyed the superpowers the most. I was always the most interested in the conflicts that they would choose to face. They'd get hung up on the idea that someone was being accused of something they didn't do, or a teacher was playing favorites. It was always about fairness and grade school justice, things they were likely to try to make sense of in their own everyday lives. I started to mentor one of the boys who had aged out of the program. He was really talented. He could pursue theater as a career if he wanted. Anyway, I encouraged him to get involved at the Civic, and he's been a staple there ever since. I think the theater has surrounded him with a community who has accepted him. One of the other students didn't trust me. She lived with her grandfather, and she was tough, very tough, and it seemed like life was a struggle for her. She kind of had the attitude like, this is stupid, but since I'm here, I might as well participate. She had a big personality and could sway the group, but I noticed she had an eye for directing. So as I was putting together the performance for mom's annual event, I asked her if she'd help. She loved it. Now she's very involved with the Muncie Civic Theater and she works on the kids' shows. I watch her wearing a headset, pulling the curtain up to reveal the stage that the boy I mentor dances and sings on, the same stage I played Dolly on, the same stage where pretending to be someone else encouraged me to live again. Hearts and Homes, Katie Fleisch's story as told to Kate Devantier, performed by Laura Williamson. I've taken great care in constructing my home. Not the physical house. There's like a one in five chance every day that I'll fall in the parking lot walking in heels to work each morning. So I stay away from hammers and nails when possible. No, I mean home. Not just a material structure, but a feeling of love and acceptance. It's not always an easy thing to construct. But because of my daughter Elizabeth, I found the most amazing community in which to do so. I've learned a lot of things from Elizabeth. Even at seven years old with dark springy curls and a toothy grin, she knows herself better than most 40-year-old women I know. She's so self-aware. Elizabeth is honestly one of the most amazing children I've ever encountered. She's beautiful and smart and funny and talented. She also happens to have been born a boy. Ever since she was able to communicate and have her own personality, I knew there was something different about her. For me, it was a matter of putting the puzzle pieces together and figuring out what it was. But despite all the possible scenarios, transgender never crossed my mind. For a lot of people, that might have been a stumbling block. Luckily, because I'm pretty open-minded, I never had a second thought about it. It took a little time. But for me... There's no question. You just love your kid. We've been transitioning for a few months now. You can see a difference. Elizabeth is really living an authentic life. 
and she's happy. She started to build a strong foundation for her future home, her own space of love and acceptance. While her transition has been pretty smooth so far, we haven't been without our own cracks in the walls. I've had people state that I have a mental condition and that my children should be taken away by Child Protective Services. It's like there's this gang mentality. People have this preconceived notion about transgender people. They're not real, or it's a disease, or a mental illness, or parents create the situation. They think I took a little boy and put him in a dress. Please, I can't even get my kids to eat broccoli. Elizabeth experiences it too. One little girl told her that Jesus doesn't approve of that. That's not what Jesus wants. Mm, Pretty heavy stuff to deal with. She's very sensitive and very loving and compassionate. She wants everyone to like her and be happy. When someone says something hurtful, something she sits and thinks about, it sticks. It's hard to build with crumbling blocks. But this experience has also given us tools. What I've found is, I have amazing support. For the most part, we have had the most loving and positive reception. As a whole, the LGBTQ community is so much more accepting and loving than many of us, and I am so honored that they have accepted me as a part of their family. I don't think the LGBTQ community is as small as everyone thinks. I feel like there are other children out there. Their parents are afraid to come forward, or the children are afraid to come forward. I just hope that by being so open and telling our story, it'll show families that it's okay to let your child be who they are. There is a support system locally. We can be your home. This community I am a part of is a family of welders, not wrecking balls. We bring things together. We make them stronger. You can't be a weak person or a weak parent and be out like we are. We can be hit with a lot of negativity, but this whole experience has taught me to be more loving and accepting. I see this as an opportunity for me to advocate and educate and maybe create a path for a better future for Elizabeth. It really just boils down to loving your child for exactly who they are. Here's the thing. The whole situation going on in the country right now with all the turmoil and all the hate, it's not really an issue about God or about lifestyle choices or about sin or hell. It's an issue about heart and acceptance. People need to live in their own houses, and if they don't want to visit their neighbor's house, they don't. They especially don't need to vandalize or destroy it. I wouldn't change Elizabeth for anything. This is a girl who, after learning about adoption, cried because there are babies in the world with no parents. This is a girl who spends her time tearing napkins into paper hearts to give to people she just met. This is a girl who hopes that all people, transgender or not, can have a happy life. Some people might take issue with the first four words of the preceding sentences. As her mother, I'm most proud of what comes after. A lot of people have reached out and called her a hero for being brave enough to speak her story, 
but she doesn't know any different. That's just Elizabeth, and it's been an adventure and just a joy to see her bloom into who she is. I am so blessed to have the community that I do. I am a part of a family of acceptance, kindness, compassion, understanding, and love. These are the elemental stones with which we build our house. If you're ever in the neighborhood, just knock on our door. We are always home. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates, providing intensive therapy, individualized academic instruction, and social skills training for children with autism. Behavior Associates analysts develop an individualized treatment plan for each child receiving services. Presenting sponsor of The Facing Project, more at BehaviorABA.com. I want to welcome back to the show, Kelsey Timmerman, former co-host on The Facing Project radio show, my co-founder on The Facing Project, my friend, New York Times bestselling author. Keep going. You've been busy. I, I have been. So what have you been up to? Well, uh, I decided it would be a good idea to go back to grad school and become a better storyteller and help other people become better storytellers. At the same time, while I'm researching and writing and traveling for my fourth book. So it kind of became a little bit overwhelming. So I just kind of like disappeared a little bit from the show. There's no like dramatic behind the music episode of yeah, where, where there I There was went. a split. There was some split between us or something. No. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. Yeah. So did you become a better storyteller? I hope so. Uh, so I'm like working on the edits of my book right now. It should come out in 2024. And I got the degree. Uh, I got a chance to teach students writing, which was great. Um, and now I'm actually uh, teaching some classes here at Ball State, too, yeah. which is fun. That's awesome. It could I audit one of those courses if I wanted to, uh, to become a better it, storyteller? I would charge you extra. Okay. I would yeah. charge you extra. Well, speaking of storytelling, uh, I opened this episode talking about when we first started The Facing Project. And well, actually, before it was even The Facing Project, uh, that, that first project on poverty and my connection with Pat and how that, that moved me, the story, sitting down with her and helping capture that. Tell me about the first time you had a similar experience when you were helping someone else tell their story through the Facing Project. Yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of came to like the the Facing Project having done a lot of reporting around the world, whether it's individuals who who left their home in Honduras and hiked across the border to make a better life in the United States or a guy in West Africa who was enslaved on a cacao farm. And through all that, like these stories are heavy and they, 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 you know, I feel like these chains, these necklaces that are, each story weighs a little bit. And I've walked away from the stories at times and like later, like was in tears, but I have never been moved to tears, like in an interview with someone in a conversation with someone until a facing project story. And I think that's something that's really unique about the facing project. Cause it's not just like you're writing this person's like third person story. You're hearing these words, knowing that you're going to have to walk in these words. So it was um, uh, a, a mother who had lost a child. And um, so she's sharing her story. And then it just comes out that he like just unexpectedly 
passed away at night and it just out of out of nowhere i start sobbing and it was unexpected because i had had all these other experiences like people affected by wars and you know disease and and poverty and i kind of maintained some level of maybe professionalism if you want to call it that while still trying to maintain some humanity but this one I was like apologizing and it wasn't just like a little bit. It was like a full on like like you had sob. to be excused. Like yes. stand up and walk away. And yeah. she like, you know, put her arm around me and said it's okay. The the tears honor the journey. Yeah. And I ended up working that into the story. So I think it's just something just really unique about I mean that story is like she's um you know just to have that that empathy trying to see the world from her point of view and walk in those words and when you make that pivot to try to do that like it, you feel it a little bit more than a typical like story that i was reported on in the past yeah and listening is such an important part of the empathy journey which seems so simple but you know the work that that we do i mean the work that you started that i became a part of that grew into this bigger thing we talk about acts of empathy and that includes listening of course writing is a big part of that walking in someone else's shoes even though we, you can never really walk in someone else's shoes but through the written word or the spoken word uh, in active listening it is possible to begin to understand what it's like for someone else and to understand their lived experience. And I know in the listening process, so often I find this in conversations with people all the time. I'm sure you do too, where you realize people aren't actually in the moment with you mm-hmm. and you can feel, I mean, you can feel when somebody is actually I'm staring in the moment. You, I'm making really hard eye contact <laughs> I know, right and now. I, and I'm not going to blink, which hopefully it's a stare down now. You, I'm really listening making, to you really making, hard. Making you really nervous the more I stare at you. But this idea of, it's not even an idea. It's just like somehow it's become part of our culture. And I don't know if this is universal, uh, global or whatever, or if this is like clearly an American issue. But people are just waiting for their turn to talk yeah, and waiting for their turn to share their thought or idea or their counter argument. And authentic listening just is kind of out the window. And what we're doing is trying to bring that back in many ways. And part of that is, right, encouraging people as they're talking by nodding to show that you're listening, but giving them the space to continue. We're both nodding right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> to know that they're not going to be interrupted. Just, you know, to to keep that nodding and, and creating that space, that listening space that leads to empathy. And I think what you were saying around meeting with the storyteller and her sharing this really intimate moment in her life, the death of her child... And that moved you in such a way that had you just been ticking off boxes to get through an interview, would it have? And also I think it's in person too, you know, like we went, when we went through COVID and we couldn't be together and we were trying to do facing projects virtually. I also think that makes it more complex as well. There's some magic that happens when you're next to someone, you're breathing the same air, you can put an arm around someone. Yeah. Um, during COVID, I was uh, reporting a story and I was in a uh, um, a truck with a guy and we were both like masking 
And then he, eventually his mask was kind of came down. He started to share the story about also losing a child. And I felt like I couldn't actively listen because I had this mask and I couldn't reflect oh. that I was trying to be empathetic and I was, you know, felt his story. And eventually like I, I pulled down my mask just so I could, because I was trying with just my eyes, you know? And so I think like listening is an active thing. And I think so is empathy. I, I think that's something we can work at and get more we get get better at and so i have a question yeah. for you like do you feel yourself through this work or just the just writing and reading do you feel yourself becoming more empathetic i do in fact i mean uh, something that our listeners may not know but every facing project that's ever written no matter where it is geographically comes to us and we read all of those stories yeah. <laughs> so we, we come pretty heavy at we times, have yeah. read thousands of stories that deal with really heavy issues. And I've been moved to tears before when I'm reading stories. Uh, I have stories that make me angry, not necessarily the storyteller, but as situations that they experienced in their lives. And I think all of those kinds of narratives do shift my own mindset, get rid of some of my prejudice that maybe I didn't even realize I had. But there are some stories that I read and I... I start to feel a little uncomfortable at times, some of the stories. But there's learning in that uncomfortableness, mm -hmm. right? Like, if we allow ourselves to lean in, not to use that word that's overused, right, or that phrase, but if you allow yourself to lean into that uncomfortableness that's happening when someone's telling you their story or you're reading it, that's the moment in that silence and that uncomfortableness, if you can just lean in and step back mm -hmm. that allows you to learn that's that's the moment to learn and we all have we all have space and capacity to learn more right mm -hmm. none of us have the answers and even when we think something is exactly the way that the world is and should be immediately someone's going to come it might be the generation behind us might come with a new idea or a new way of seeing the world and that makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's also a time for us to listen and understand why they view the world the way they do and what we can learn from that. And in turn, how can we begin to empathize with these stories, these new stories, these new ways of 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 being. Yeah. And so definitely facing project stories have shifted my worldview, even when I thought I was probably the most open-minded person mm -hmm. in the world. Um it, it's um uh, reinforced some stereotypes in many ways that maybe I carried, but also broke many of them down. And we've, we've talked about this yeah. before. It's like, you just empathize with people you agree with, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's the challenge, like to have, uh, sometimes I think there's a term called radical empathy and I'll try to apply this to certain situations. Yeah. And where I love that term, but keep talking. And I'll I be like really it. mad at someone, you know, yeah. and, uh, then I'll just try to step back. And I think because I've exercised the empathy muscle, so much. I'm like, all right, yeah. I've come across people and stories I disagree with before, but what else like their history? What else their lived experience? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, some of that I don't know. And some of it you just have to imagine, but like to try to have empathy for that person's point of view, even if their view is, it doesn't mean you have to agree with their point of view. I've read plenty yeah. of facing project stories. I don't agree with, yeah. you know, um, uh, but it's, it's to be able to empathize. Empathy doesn't just shouldn't just extend to people necessarily that we always agree with. 
Right. Yeah. Well, because then if we're only talking and listening to people we agree with and we're hearing a story from them that is emotional, like, yeah, we're likely going to be moved, but we're also in kind of an echo chamber because if we are just only talking to people we agree with at all times, that doesn't get us anywhere as a society, right? That that just kind of keeps us in this space of the same. And it's possible, it's really possible now, right? Because we can find our online communities. So much of, much of us live in an online world that's in our pocket mm-hmm. of people that are just like us. And that as actually empathy isn't always a, is a good thing. Like some of the readings I've done on empathy, it talks about how, you know, empathy is a spotlight and uh, it requires proximity mm-hmm. or some familiar familiarity. <laughs> it's a hard word. Thank, I have empathy for you, you because I have hard words too that I sometimes <laughs> thank you. I trip appreciate over. that. But like, so it requires that proximity and you, you don't, ex- you can't, it's hard to extend that to people outside of that like spotlight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges of, of, of empathy. Like it can, it can be tribalism. It can be nationalism. It can be just people in your religion. All of a sudden it leads to these groups. So empathy doesn't, some people's view doesn't always equal a, a good thing. Yeah. Now I like to think, can it be like panned out, you know, like, as you exercise that muscle and I have empathy for someone who's lived a vastly different experience than I have, the next time I cross come across someone who's had a vastly different experience I've had, am I able to have, am I able to have more likely to have empathy for that individual as well? And I think that's the, that's the hope I have to have just that empathy just leads to tribalism yeah. that it, we can pan it out. And we're all just one big tribe and not just to humans, but also to the animals and the rest of our biosphere. Like, can we have empathy for a rock? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would hope we're all, we're all connected, even inanimate objects on this planet. We're all connected, right? I mean, we cannot escape our connection to an, an animal, another species, to the soil, to the grass, to the rocks, to all these things. We're interconnected. If we try to separate ourselves out, that's the end, right? Yeah. Is that the end of the planet? Is that the end of... I mean, we're already seeing, in some ways, if people ignore the world around us, that has catastrophic yeah. consequences. Mm-hmm. I So one of the places I went uh, on my sabbatical here was I went to Colombia to hang out with this indigenous group called the Arhuaco. And I thought they were going to teach me about like for sustainable regenerative farming. That's what the new book is about. And uh, they're like, well, we're going to go sit here next to this river and we're going to ask permission to farm. We're going to we're going to think about things. Mm -hmm. And so they would say, all right, think of a food. And I'm like, bacon, you Mm, know, pizza. (laughs) (laughs) And and then like, okay, now what does that food eat or what gave that what gave that food life? So I'm thinking like, oh, you know, some some mm-hmm. corn grew. What gave the corn life? Well, sun. And all of a sudden I started spiraling down into this. Oh, my gosh, everything is connected, you know. Yeah. And I think that is um, um, if, if you think about anything, a rock. Well, OK, mm-hmm. a rock outside your the stream here in Indiana. Well, 300 million years ago or whatever, it was underwater. There were fish swimming by and they got moved. And you know, th- this has a history uh, had a, a, um, a life before you come into contact with it, just as every person does. And if yeah. we can look at people and we can acknowledge 
that they have a history and experiences that that we could know if we listen to it or, or we can at least maybe imagine. Um, and that gives me hope that we could extend that to like everyone. Yeah. And especially social media, which I think, you know, was meant originally to bring us together. This idea of a platform that anyone in the world with an internet connection could get on and you could be connected and you could learn about each other. And it was really exciting in those early days. I mean, I'm sure our listeners are, are not going to be uh, surprised by any of this because most people are on social media and see that it did the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. It, it's really divided us and put us into these silos. When you were talking about being in the back end of the truck and wearing the mask, I kept thinking about this idea of you couldn't really connect with that person in that moment because they couldn't see your expressions, your, you know, the kind of the body language on your face. And that's similar to social media, right? If people spent more time in person having hard conversations and listening to those hard conversations, perhaps we wouldn't have such a divide. But most of us spend our time, our waking hours on the internet and on social media. And there's something about that space where we cannot totally empathize in that moment. I I do think there are ways that you can. Like, for instance, you know, we'll post facing project stories. Uh, There are other storytelling orgs who do great stories as well that they put out there that you could read online and it does, does move you. But when you look at social media overall and the interactions, that lack of face-to-face body language, it's almost like the mask that you were wearing in that moment. It's like social media is also... Like way more of a mask. Right, way more of a mask. And how do we... How do we break that break that down? How do we take that mask off? I I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a trend. I think some of it was here before social media. We were talking earlier about the book Boy Alone. That mm. there's that it was like pre-internet, really, uh, definitely pre-social media, and that there was there was uh, more people bowling in the United States, but fewer people bowling in leagues. More people bowling by themselves, and so I do think that our culture kind of has this momentum of individualism that, uh, you know, we're separated from one another. We don't need our families as much as we used to because we have different social supports or maybe a certain level of economic success. And there's just less community organizations that people are belonging to. And so we seek out that community other places, which I think what makes the the work, like the Facing Project, sitting down with someone in your community, listening Mm -hmm. to them, uh, and then, you know, working with them on that final story is like, so important. So I have a question for you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so like empathy is just kind of a exercise in imagination. I mean, you can learn details of someone's story and their history and their experiences, but you're, you're you trying to see the world from their point of view. Like that's kind of like the best definition of mm-hmm. empathy, but you can't, I, I can't be you. I've actually uh, written, You've written your story, my story before, before yeah. and, it, and it's weird, right? Yes. Like you're like, I wouldn't exactly written it like that. Yeah. So it's like, I can't write from even using your words, I can't still yeah. put them together in a way that's like. Yeah. But we were forced, and that's what we do in Facing Pride. It was like this, you and I were then forced to work together to make it a piece that you were proud of as a writer. And I felt like sounded like me and conveyed my message as a storyteller. 
And that's kind of the magic yeah. in some ways. But and yeah, I, you're right. I had to make up some details because your life wasn't interesting enough. <laughs> that no, is I'm not kidding. true. <laughs> we, we, we tell all of our writers on Facing Project not to make anything up. Uh, so, but, but speaking of making stuff up, you've, you know, you've been writing nonfiction and these Facing Project stories for, for, you know, decades yeah. now. Um, and, but now you're starting to, maybe I'm breaking some news here to write some fiction, explore fiction. So like, yeah. You're I'm using switching your imagination. Genre. <laughs> so has that taught you anything about empathy as you're made up these characters and you're seeing the world from their point of view? It has. Um, I can't give away too many details of the book I'm working on now for a variety of reasons that I think you understand. But I will share uh, the main character in my book is a 17-year-old with an anxiety disorder. And he's gay. And he was kicked out of his home. And the trajectory of the story then follows his life beyond that. So I'll give you that much of it. I am a gay man, but I was fortunate that I was never kicked out of my family. Uh, Of course, I had the nerves that every gay person has when they need to come out to their family, their loved ones, their friends. But I was fortunate that once I got past that, my family pretty much accepted me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in this story that I'm writing, that's not the case. And we've collected so many Facing Project stories of teenagers, college-age students, um, even some adults who were reflecting back on their teenage years who were thrown out of their homes. They became homeless. They had to figure out at 15, 16, 17 years old what was next for them in their lives. And That's a story of tragedy. It's a story that doesn't always have a happy ending, but that's a reality with with stories, right? Mm -hmm. We we are always stuck on this idea of stories should have resolution, but that's not reality. That's not life. And I want to write stories that don't always have resolution. Mm -hmm. So thinking about stories we've carried before and putting myself into the lived experience of those stories... And in this case of the 17-year-old, who is a fictional character, but I had to think back on my own time as a 17-year-old, and what would I have done had I been thrown out by my parents? And if I also had um, anxiety as well on top of that, uh, or, you know, other mental health issues, how do you navigate life? So I had to put myself in that mindset to think about what would I do? And so that's kind of the reactionary piece that you get on the page. And of course, there's just as much research that you have to do with fiction as Mm -hmm. there is nonfiction. So the research is happening with that to understand anxiety disorders and how that compounds and et cetera, et cetera. Once I put myself in that mindset, it, it, it was challenging. It put me in a dark place. I mean, there were some scenes in that book writing it. I, myself became anxiety-ridden and a bit depressed. The difference is I can go on a run to clear my mind, come back home, have a good dinner with my husband, and be good for a few days until I'm ready to jump back into my manuscript. Mm -hmm. But I absolutely had to put myself in the shoes of a 17-year-old who had come out, was not accepted, was compounded by an anxiety disorder, and had to navigate life without his family and the only place he ever knew as home. 
And you do begin to empathize. I mean, there are, there are numbers and stats connected to teens who are thrown out, who become homeless, who have to end up becoming sex workers to make ends meet. And that's never been my reality. And while I could read the stories and always think, that's awful, I should be doing more as a person who didn't have that experience, it wasn't until I was able to turn to fiction mm-hmm. that I could actually put myself in that experience to write a long form story um, that I hope, you know, once it's out into the world can help people, other people who read it understand and empathize with a gay teenager who was kicked out of their home trying to make their way. So as many of the nonfiction stories that I've read around this that make me, of course, sad and uh, empathize, it wasn't until I actually had to fall into the life of this 17-year-old character and make the decisions on the page, yeah. right? It's not like I'm capturing something that somebody else experienced, but rather putting myself in that position and then capturing that experience on the page. It changed me in a different way. You can know that person's whole story. I know right? that person's whole yeah. story because We're, I am that person. Which, is, which right? isn't possible with any other like, yeah. real story, with real person. Yeah. So I'm actually finding like fiction is a good way to create empathy, especially for writers. But I do think also for readers, where before I always kind of leaned on the nonfiction mm. to be the place because those are real stories. Yeah. Like you can't argue. Well, you can. Some people will, right? We we know we live in a society where people will argue about anything. But you really can't argue with someone's lived experience, mm-hmm. right? That's their life. They've lived it. And so that's what works so well with nonfiction is like, this is somebody's lived experience on the page versus fiction where it's made up, right? Yeah. Or it could be inspired by true events. But my perspective really changed Mm. on that once I forced myself to be my character and have to make decisions as I was writing on what do I do for my next meal? Mm. I'm alone on this train track, walking. I'm hungry. I have no skills (laughs) of hunting or figuring out if a plant I'm going to eat is poisonous. Mm What do you do in that moment? And as you're writing that story, you got to figure yeah. out what you're going to you do. You got to feel that. You got to feel it and you mm-hmm. got to figure it out. So yeah, writing fiction has has changed me. I wouldn't say it has changed me more than nonfiction, but I would say it's pretty equal. Yeah. 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 It seems like another way to exercise the empathy muscle. Yeah. You know, whether it's doing a facing project story or taking a photo of someone, I think there's a lot of different exercises mm-hmm. out there. And, and, and I think, that's why like the work of the facing project is so important other mm-hmm. arts organizations hey shout out to english majors uh it's different ways of exercising that muscle yeah. and i think what our society needs now more than ever is for people to exercise that empathy muscle and to kind of ex- be able to expand how far they're able to extend mm-hmm. that empathy to, to folks and then let that not just guide their connection, but their actions of their lives, not just their compassion, but your actions of what kind of society are we going to work to, to, to build together? Um, yeah. But I'm looking forward to reading that book. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> well, Mr. Timmerman, I think that is a good note to end on. 
don't be a stranger. We'll have you back. And who knows, maybe you'll end up co-hosting the show again. I don't know. We don't want to, we don't want to put any teasers out there that may or may not be true. Hey, thanks for having me back. Always great to be in the IPR studios with you, JR. All right. Perfect. Special thanks to Big Brothers Big Sisters and Wittenberg University for planning and organizing the facing projects that led to the two stories shared in today's episode. And also huge thanks to my co-founder of the facing project, Kelsey Timmerman, for joining me back in the studio just like old times. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana. And it's produced by the amazing producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. I'm your host, J.R. Jameson. And until next time, I wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates, providing intensive therapy, individualized academic instruction, and social skills training for children with autism. Behavior Associates analysts develop an individualized treatment plan for each child receiving services. Presenting sponsor of The Facing Project, more at behavioraba.com.